0: Delighted that you're here, and I hope you've got your Bible with you, and if so, I encourage you to turn over to 2 Chronicles chapter 28. We'll spend some time in 2 Chronicles chapter 28 this morning, and if you have two markers in your Bible or something you can mark another section, go ahead and find 2 Kings chapter 16. We'll be flipping back and forth between those two sections several times in our study this morning. These two chapters tell us the story and the reign of King Ahaz of Judah. What we know about King Ahaz, there's not a great deal of information as far as the number of chapters or verses that are devoted to his reign, but we do know that he reigned for 16 years. And Those years were from 741 B.C. to 726 B.C., which puts him in the time of Isaiah, where we're studying on Wednesday night. He was one of the kings, if you were here Wednesday night, we talked about that Isaiah is prophesying during his reign. He was a bad king, and you're going to see that as we go through our study this morning. I want you to focus with me at chapter 28 and verse 19, and we're going to look at some surrounding verses later, but I want us to start with looking at verse 19, for the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz. King of Israel. And let me stop and suggest that sometimes Israel is used with reference to the people of God and not northern kingdom versus southern kingdom, because he was a king to the south of Judah. So again, let's begin at verse 19. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. Well, it's pretty much a summary of his reign. He was a man who was continually unfaithful. It's not that he started out well and he turned south toward the end of his reign. So he was a good king but turned south. Or maybe he was a bad king who turned better. But he was always a bad king from beginning to end. But I want you to focus on this particular phrase found in verse 19. And you might underline it. He encouraged moral decline. This is the New King James rendering of that. Your translation may say something very similar, and we'll look at those translations in a moment. But here was a man who encouraged moral decline. Let's talk about encouraging moral decline. The question I would ask is, are there forces around us encouraging moral decline? Would you agree that there are forces all around us? I'm not talking about necessarily in the church. We'll come to that in a moment. But are there forces all around in our society that are encouraging moral decline? If you have your eyes open at all, you have to say, well, yes, there are. There's a lot of encouraging of moral decline. Well, secondly, are there pressures encouraging moral decline in our own children? In other words, as we raise our children, hopefully to walk in the ways of the Lord, are there pressures on them that is encouraging moral decline so that their morality may go south? And the answer has to be, yes, there are a number of pressures. Well, another question that needs to be asked is, could I be encouraging moral decline? Here, I claim to be a person of God. I claim to be faithful to God. And so could it be that I'm encouraging? And you should be asking the same question. Could we be encouraging moral decline? And the answer is, we hope not. But the answer is certainly that's possible. Could I be encouraging moral decline when I don't intend to encourage moral decline? That's not my intent. That I'm encouraging someone to go south morally when that's not really what I'm setting out to do. I was trying to do something else. I wanted to accomplish something else. But because of my lack of diligence, maybe I'm encouraging moral decline. Could that be the case? And the answer is yes. The Bible talks repeatedly about the possibility of strengthening the hand of the wicked. Jeremiah and Ezekiel used that phrase. Jeremiah 23, 14. Ezekiel 13, 22 used this phrase of strengthening the hand of the wicked or strengthening the hand of the sinner. He was talking about false prophets. I'm interested in a couple of translations of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The NET says, concerning Jeremiah 23, 14, they gave encouragement to the people who were doing evil. These false prophets, though people were doing what was wrong, the false prophets were encouraging them in that. In a number of ways that we'll not go into at this moment. In Ezekiel 13 and verse 22, the New American Standard and the New Century translate that, they encourage wicked, the wicked not to stop being wicked. They were strengthening the hand of the wicked by encouraging them to continue in their wickedness. So now let's go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Let's talk this morning about encouraging moral decline. There are three things we want to talk about. First of all, I want us to look at the phrase. That is, what does this phrase mean? What does it mean to encourage moral decline? If I don't know what it means, I don't know if I'm doing that or not. It might be that I'm thinking, oh, I know what that means. That means that you're telling people they need to do evil. And I don't do that, and I wouldn't do that. As a parent, I wouldn't do that. As an elder, I wouldn't do it. As a preacher, I wouldn't do it. As a Christian, I wouldn't do that. So we couldn't be guilty. But maybe if I understand what the phrase means, I could be guilty of that. So let's look at what the phrase means. Let's start with some translations. And perhaps you're looking at a translation, you say, I'm a little confused my translation doesn't say encouraging moral decline. My translation says something about being naked. And that can be the same thing. And yes, it can. And we'll see how that's the case as we go forward. Let's look at some translation. We're going to summarize these in a moment. Let's just try to get an understanding. I do this more the older I get, looking at various translations and how, what the word actually means to come to an understanding of what the text actually is saying. So Ahaz encouraged moral decline. How is that translated in the English standard? He made Judah act sinfully. Well, that's pretty simple. There's another translation. American standard said he dealt wantonly in Judah. Some of the translations seem to focus more on his action and others focus on his action, but more on the result of his action as the New King James and the English standard do. But let's go further. The New Century said he led the people of Judah to sin. He's encouraging moral decline. The New American Standard 95 said he brought a lack of restraint in Judah. Now that's important. That's part of the definition of this word. We'll come to that in a moment. But notice that he brought about a lack of restraint in Judah. Through his leadership, through his lack of leadership, there was a lack of restraint in Judah, and that encouraged moral decline. I'm learning something already about how you go about encouraging moral decline. Let's go further. The Holman Christian Standard Bible said he threw off restraint in Judah. Now that's an interesting phrase of throwing it off, as throwing off a garment. You throw off a garment and become naked. Not literally naked at times. It's used, and we'll notice in a moment, throwing off a head garment. This very word is used. So the head is uncovered. So the throwing off of restraint. So there is no restraint anymore. You throw off restraint, and that encourages moral decline. All right, let's go further. The New International translates that promoted wickedness in Judah. Now, that doesn't tell us how, but he promoted wickedness in Judah But more literally, it's the idea of he throwing off restraint encouraged that wickedness in Judah. All right, let's go further. The New Revised Standard Version said he behaved without restraint in Judah. Well, he did behave without restraint. He did whatever he wanted. We're going to see that. He worshipped whatever gods he wanted. He turned to Assyria for help. He turned to the Damascus gods for help. He did anything he wanted. Sacrificed children to idols. Whatever he wanted to do, he behaved without restraint in Judah. The King James, now this gets interesting here. The King James, and this is not a mistranslation, but he made Judah naked. And that's symbolism. It's not saying they were physically literally naked, but he made the nation naked. Well, how was that? We'll come back to that in a moment. But to stick that one in the back of your mind. Lack of restraint, encouraging wickedness, made Judah naked. The NLT says he encouraged people, his people to sin. The Lexham said he created disorder in Judah. So in the nation of Judah, there was disorder. There was chaos in Judah. And that encouraged moral decline. The NET said he encouraged Judah to sin. Darby said he made Judah lawless. The New King James footnote said he humbled Judah. He encouraged moral decline, but he humbled them. Well, there is a connection between being humbled and being made naked. He humiliated Judah, is the idea. He humiliated them. He made them naked. He exposed them. He stole from them. We'll get all of that in just a moment from the context. The Young's literal translation said he made free with Judah. In other words, he did with Judah whatever he wanted. And he didn't use any restraint with reference to that. Now, we're going to summarize those in a moment. Let's go look more literally what this, this phrase means. Brown, Trevor, and Briggs says the word that is translated here in verse 28 moral decline, encouraging moral decline. The word translated that means simply to let go, to let alone, to remove restraint, such as if women can imagine tying their hair up. And then pulling the the binding loose, so now it's let go. The Bible uses it in that sense. Or maybe you put a garment on and you turn the garment loose. It's the idea of removing the restraint, showing a lack of restraint. Now go back to your text, He encourage moral decline. The word means to have a lack or remove the restraint. To let go, let loose. Cassinius said it means to loose, to let go, to make naked, to make unbridled lawlessness, to let lawlessness run rampant, or the idea of making naked. We'll get more about the nakedness in a moment. Holiday says it means to untie, again, like maybe tying your hair up, and then you untie it and you just let it loose. It no longer has restraint. That's the idea. We're going to make use of those words in a moment. To allow depravity or depravity to spread. So here is something that's not dealt with, it is not condemned, it is not curtailed, it is not restrained, and so it's allowed to run loose. Tolerant spirit. Now let's talk about this idea of being made naked here in the King James. Let's go to Numbers chapter 5 and verse 18. Numbers chapter 5 and in verse 18. This is the test for a, a woman accused of adultery. I'm not going to go into all the tests, but she was to come before the priest, and notice in verse 18, then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord and uncover the woman's head. The idea of uncovering and taking the garment off of her head, removing the garment from from her head, is the same word translated encouraging moral decline. So you see the idea of the connection of nakedness. It's uncovering, removing restraint is the idea the uncovering of something making it naked now notice this in exodus chapter 32 and in verse 25 turn there this is the case in exodus 32 where moses or rather aaron had had made the golden calf you'll remember and in making the golden calf the text says at verse 25 i'm reading from the new king james now when moses saw Notice that when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them. The people wanted a golden calf, they made a golden calf, and Aaron didn't stop it. He could have stopped it, he could have said it was wrong, but it was unrestrained. The King James, here's some translations of that that may help us to understand this idea of nakedness. The King James says that Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked into their shame. They're not literally naked, but he'd exposed them. The new century said Moses saw that they were acting wildly. That's they were unrestrained. The Holman Christian says Moses saw that they were out of control, and Aaron was letting them go out of control. One translation says they were completely out of control. And then another one uses the idea of nakedness. They were acting wildly. They were broken loose, the American standard says. So you see the idea of this nakedness. Now let's get a couple of quotes and then we're going to move on and summarize and make some application of this from the text. Poole says concerning 2 Chronicles 28, 19 that this idea of naked, that he made Judah naked. In what sense did he make them naked? Well, he made them naked in the sense of taking away their ornament and their defense and their strength. To wit, their treasures he sent to Assyria. To no purpose, their frontier towns, their strongholds, which by his folly and wickedness were lost, their religion and their divine protection, which was their great and only firm security, which by his sins he forfeited. So his point is that they were made naked in the sense he stripped them of everything valuable to them and he made them naked. Let's go to Exodus 32 again, at least in our mind. That word naked was used there in the King James translation. Pool again says, they were stripped both of their ornament, not so much of their jewels of their ears, but of their innocency of their mind and their lives and their defense. That is their favor and their protection from God. Made them subject to the prey of their enemies. So here's the idea. Again, Aaron made them naked in what sense? He stripped them by not restraining them. He stripped them of their divine protection and now they're laid bare and open to the world. And there's the idea of this concept of nakedness. Now let's summarize what we just learned about this phrase, encouraging moral decline. What does it mean? Well, it means simply to encourage sin. It means to remove or loosen restraint. So if I'm in any way encouraging sin, I'm encouraging moral decline. If I'm in any way removing the restraint or loosening the restraint, the restraint of God, then I am encouraging moral decline. It means to expose to danger. Whether in influencing brethren and I'm exposing them to danger. Or maybe it's my children. Maybe it's my family. I'm exposing them to danger. Spiritually speaking, I'm making them naked. I'm encouraging moral decline. It means to strip them of their innocence, their defense, and their protection from God. In other words, when I allow my children to go in a direction they should not go, and I'm very tolerant of that, I'm encouraging moral decline. I'm stripping them of their innocence, their defense, and their protection. It means I'm taking away things valuable to them. You'll see the significance in the context in a moment. I strip them of things that are valuable. I make them naked in that sense. Encouraging moral decline. Now I know the phrase and what it means. Let's go to the context and see what it is Ahaz did. So here's where we need our Bibles open to 2 Chronicles. And perhaps a finger over to 2 Kings chapter 16, we're going to flip back and forth. What is it that he did? So the text would describe him as a man who encouraged moral decline. I know what it means now. But what is it that he did? So let's see. Let's start with this. First of all, I want you to notice that he did not do what was right. Let's go to 2 Chronicles. We'll go to the Chronicles account first, and then we'll go over to 2 Kings. So you might hold a finger, we'll be flipping back and forth. Look at chapter 28 in verse 1. And Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. He didn't do what was right. Drop down to verse 6. Verse 6 says, For Pekah, the son of Remolah, uh, killed 100 and 20,000 in Judah in one day, all valiant men, because... They had, here's our phrase, forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Drop down to verse 19 in our text, where we just read a moment ago. He was continually unfaithful to the Lord. So what am I learning from that? He didn't do what was right. Go over to 2 Kings chapter 16 and in verse 2. That Ahi was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, uh, his God, as his father David had done. So what am I learning What is it that he did so that he was said to be a man who encouraged moral decline? He didn't do what was right. Now the idea of doing what's right was not right in his own mind. But verse 1 in 2 Kings chapter 16 in verse 2 simply said he didn't do what was right in the sight of the Lord. That was the thing that he didn't do that was right. He forsook the Lord, verse 6. He continued unfaithfully. It was a continual unfaithfulness, Verse 19. Here's what I'm learning from that, that when we ignore what God says, when we ignore the will of God, then we're doing the same thing that Ahaz had done. In other words, when I know what God said, I know the Bible teaches this, but I'm going to do different, or I'm not ready to submit to that, I'm not ready to, to bow to that pressure of doing what God told me to do, then I'm no different than Ahaz. How is it that he encouraged moral decline? He did not do what was right. Secondly, he followed the crowd. How did he encourage moral decline? I'll tell you what he did. He, did, he followed the crowd. Look at verses 2 to 4 now. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made mold images for the Baals. Now we'll get the rest of that context down to verse 4 in a moment, exactly the details of that. All I want you to see is he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Not just one king, but of the kings of Israel. Look at chapter 16, verse 3 of 2 Kings. That he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So what are you learning? I learned from that he did what most of the other kings had done. He didn't have the strength to stand alone and say, you know what, I'm going to do what's right, no matter what the previous king and the previous king and the previous to that and the previous to that has done. I'm going to do what's right. He didn't have the courage to do that. He did what every other king had done. He didn't resist the pressure. Not only if not of the kings, but he didn't resist the pressure of the pagans. He's burning his incense to the fire, burned his children to the pagan gods, Just like the nations had done, 2 Kings 16 and verse 3 said. Let's go to Romans 12 just briefly. And notice it's easy to do what everybody else is doing. Paul, in talking about his instructions for those who are the people of God and their relationship to the world, their relationship to God, their relationship to brethren. That I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Here's your relationship to God. Be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, don't let the world conform you and mold you and shape you to be just like it. But be transformed, be different. Ahaz wasn't willing to do that. And I want to tell you that when we fit into the crowd and we're doing the very thing the crowd is doing, and we don't have the guts to stand against the pressures of the crowd, we're no different than Ahaz. We may be encouraging moral decline. What is it that he did? So the text says, you know what? He, he was a man who encouraged moral decline. He didn't do what was right. He followed the crowd. And thirdly, he placed little value on important themes. He placed very little value on important themes. Let's look at verse 21. 2 Chronicles 28. For Ahaz took part, in the, took part of the treasures of the house of the Lord... From the house of the king and from the leaders, and gave it to the king of Assyria, but he didn't help him. What's he doing? He's taking the treasures of the house of the Lord, the house of the king, and the house of the leaders. Those are valuable things Solomon had built, Solomon had made by the craftsmen, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. Go to 16 and 8 now of 2 Kings, and Ahaz took silver and gold, a little more specific in this account found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. Here are valuable things. He gave the treasures of the house of the Lord away. King of Assyria, you can have them. Here's a present to you. I want you to come and help me. I want you to help me fight. In fact, 2 Kings pointed out that he wanted him to come and fight. I want you to come and fight with me against Assyria and against Israel. Because they're fighting against me to come and fight against you. I want you to come and help me. Get on my side and let's fight. There's no help to him. But he gave the king's treasures away. The house of the Lord's treasures away. He gave away the silver and the gold. 2 Chronicles says he didn't gain anything in return. He gave valuables away and got nothing of value in return. Something very practical to learn from that. You see, you could be giving away all the treasures of your family. You could be taking like the silver and gold from the house of God and giving it away. How so? You might be giving the knowledge of the Word away. So, how am I giving the knowledge of the Word away? By not teaching your children the Word. Are you sitting down in your home and in your family teaching them the Word of God? Or are you only counting on them absorbing a little bit in services? Are you taking them making sure they're in Bible class and they're learning the Old Testament and the New Testament and they're learning the the scheme of redemption as it unfolds from Genesis to Revelation? Or are you robbing them and taking that away and giving it away? You may be giving away the knowledge of the Word. Maybe by not leading them in the knowledge of the Word. You could be giving away their faith in God. You say, oh no, their faith is their own faith. I wouldn't give their faith away. I couldn't give their faith away. Well, you may be giving it away in this sense by not training them. Maybe if you're not training them in the way they should go. Maybe by not teaching them the instructions of the word. Or maybe by tolerating error. Maybe you tolerate error that's being taught and you know your children are hearing that error, but I'm not too concerned about that. You may be robbing them of their faith. You may be taking their faith and giving it to the king of Assyria. And their faith is gone. And you wonder where it went. You could be giving away treasures of the heaven. That is, you're giving away their hope of heaven by allowing sin. You know they're doing things contrary to the will of God, but I don't want to upset them. I I don't want to offend my child. I I don't want to drive them away from me. So I'm going to be tolerant of that. You may be giving away the hope of heaven. You may be just like Ahaz who gave the treasures of silver and gold to the king of Assyria. Didn't gain him anything. This is not going to gain you anything either. You may be giving away their emotional well-being by having a chaotic family. You maybe have a family that's in chaos. There's fussing and there's arguing and there's no, no uh, calmness within the family. And all your children know is this chaos within the family. And you robbed them of their emotional well-being. You gave it away to the king of Assyria. No different than Ahab. Why did the text say he was a man who encouraged moral decline? It was because he didn't do what was right. He followed the crowd and he placed little value on important things. But Here's something else he did. He was on a path that just goes further away. Let's go now to chapter 28 now and look at verse 22. Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. And then an interesting phrase, not in all translations. Yours may be missing this. That is, this is that King Ahaz. It's interesting. That's the man right there we're talking about. That's this King Ahaz. What was it? He was on a path that goes further and further away. See, it's one thing to sin because we all do that. First John 1 and verse 8. But it's another thing to continue in sin, 1 John 3. So one person, yeah, I've, I've committed sin, but I corrected that. It's another thing to continue sin, but it's even another thing to progress even deeper into sin, to go down the path of sin and go deeper and deeper and deeper. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, those, verse 13, that should be instead of verse 12, that evil men shall wax worse and worse deceiving and being deceived. In other words, you get on a path of sin, it goes further and deeper and deeper than you ever thought it would go. Look at Luke chapter 15. Here's the case of the prodigal son. Things got worse than he ever dreamed. He wanted to go away from home and have a life of freedom away from God and away from his father. He got in a mess because he got to the point that he was begging for food and would have eaten the slop that the hogs ate. The text says. And he said, I have, uh, I, but I, I have less than my father's servants. And I began to be in want, the text says. Or he began to be in want. And so the prodigal went further than he ever thought he would. I want to tell you that when we start into an area that makes us a little uncomfortable, I don't feel right about doing this. I don't feel right about saying this. I don't feel like right in participating. You continue on in that, and that's going to carry you even further because you're going to get comfortable with that, and you'll go even deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. It may start, for example, with, you know, I have to miss services, and uh, I don't feel comfortable, but then I get comfortable, and then... I miss even more, and I miss even more, and I miss even more. Or maybe it's the participation in something that I think maybe is wrong, but I don't know, I don't feel right about that, but I do that and I get comfortable, and then I go deeper into more sin and deeper sin. What is it that the text says that describes him as a man who encouraged moral decline? He was on a path and went further and further away from God, but here's something else he did. Let's Go back to chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. Now, he turned to the wrong source for help. He encouraged moral decline. How did he do that? Well, look at verse sixteen of chapter twenty-eight. Chapter sixteen says, "At the same time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria to help him." He's having trouble with Syria—not Assyria, but Syria and Israel. They're fighting against him to join in a battle. He don't want to join. He said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go. I don't want to fight. But they're fighting to get him to join in the fight, as we talked about in our study on Isaiah. So where does he turn for help? He doesn't turn to God. He turns to the king of Assyria. Look at verse 23. That's not all he did. For he sacrificed, look at verse 23, he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them, and they may help me. See what he's doing? See, the Syrians seem to have victory over me. And since the Syrians are so victorious, their gods must be good gods. I'll make a sacrifice to their gods, and maybe they'll come and help me. If the king of Assyria won't help, maybe the gods of Damascus will help me somehow. Go over to 2 Kings, verse 16, verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant, I am your son, come and save me from the hand of the king of syria and from the hand of the king of israel who rise up against me i need help i need deliverance and i want you to come and do that now the rest of the verses we won't take time to notice at verse 10 on actually through verse 20 but he turned to those gods and wanted to make idols like the gods of damascus were so that i can sacrifice to those gods the details are given in second kings chapter 16. Here's what I'm learning from that. I'm learning he didn't turn to God and put his trust and his faith in God. And that's what the book of Isaiah is all about. He didn't turn to God for help. But what he did is he turned to the kings of Assyria and the gods of Damascus. That was his source of help. That was his source of encouragement. That was his source of deliverance. And I want to suggest that we often turn to the world for advice when we ought to be turning to God. I want to know how I need to raise my children. I want to know what I should do, how I should handle my problems. And so we turn to the world to ask the world, how do I do that? Or we turn to our own opinions. Or maybe it's our families. And as for their input, rather than turning to the source of God, what does God say, what does His Word instruct? We're no different from Ahaz. What is it that Ahaz did? So that the text says, you know what, he was a man who encouraged moral decline. Well, here's what he did. He worshipped as he wanted to worship. He worshipped like he wanted to worship. Now, let's see what he did. Beginning verse 3 of chapter 28. He worshipped all right. He was a religious man. He didn't give up on religion. He was a very religious man. Look at verse 3. That he burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills under every green tree. He's practicing idolatry. He'd learned that from the pagans. he learned that from the other kings. That's what he had done. Look at verse 23. We already noted verse 23 that he went and said, I, I, I want to do this. Because the gods of, of the kings of Assyria help them, then I will sacrifice to them. Maybe they'll come and help me. He's worshiping those gods. So I'll worship these idols. I'll worship those idols. It doesn't matter. I'll worship the way I want to worship. Well, let's go over to 2 Kings chapter 16, verses uh, 3 and 4. Again, we see that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel Made his son pass through the fire. Notice at verse 4, he sacrificed and burned incense. Now here's where we have beginning at verse 10 through verse 20, which we won't take the time to read, is the details of all the sacrifices and how they built the sacrifice, where he learned that and how he patterned it. But the point is he's worshiping like he wants to worship. In other words, he didn't worship like God had instructed him to worship. He worshiped like he wanted, to suit him, like he wanted and I want to suggest that when our worship is on our schedule, when our worship is on our desires, based on our desires and our plans, we're no different from Ahaz. So when I say, you know what, I'm going to worship God, but it's going to be on my schedule. I can't worship God like he wants me to. I can't do like, I know he talks about the first day of the week, but I can't do that always. I will, I will worship God according to my plan and according to my schedule, and it'll be by my desires and, and my wishes, then we're no different from Ahaz. Now, what is it that he did? Here's a summary of what he did. What, we, what did the text say that he did? So that he's described as the man who encouraged moral decline. He did what did not do what was right. He followed after the crowd. He placed little value on important things. He was on a trajectory that carried him further away from God. And furthermore, he turned to the wrong source for help. And he worshiped like he wanted to do. Does any of that describe you? Could that be describing me? that I'm worshiping like like God wants me, or am I worshiping on my plan? Am I doing what is right in the sight of the Lord? Am I placing very little value on important things? Am I turning to the wrong source? Am I following the crowd? I might be encouraging moral decline. I know what the phrase means. I now know the context in which it sets, and I'm having a better understanding of encouraging moral decline. I know what it means in context, and I know what the phrase means. Now let's talk about the warning to us. The phrase, the context, now the warning. What do I get from that? What application can we make of that? What does this mean to me? Go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 32. And let's read again where the text says that Ahaz encouraged moral decline in Judah. Could we be doing that? Could I be doing that? Well, first of all, let's consider the fact that it's possible that we could be encouraging moral decline in two ways. We could do that directly. By that, I simply mean that we could be approving and encouraging what's sinful. For example, under this circumstance, it's all right to lie, I might tell someone. It's for a good cause. It's to protect your reputation It it is for, for the good of the cause of the Lord even that your reputation is protected and so go ahead and lie and so I'm encouraging that and I'm approving of that so I might be directly encouraging moral decline. That's possible. Not often does that happen among the people of God. But we could be doing it indirectly. How so? Where we may not approve of the wrong that's being done, but we still encourage it. How so? Maybe by our action. Maybe by our inaction. It may be what I'm doing that encourages it, even though I, I never said I approved of it. In fact, I may say I don't approve of this. By my action, it may encourage it. Maybe by my lack of action, I'm encouraging moral decline. We can allow through our neglect through our lack of restraint decline though that's not our intent maybe my intent wasn't to encourage this moral decline so let's list some ways in which this is possible so how could I be doing this let's list about four ways number one I could encourage moral decline by a lack of teaching that could be true as a parent that could be true as a congregation that can be true as preachers that can be true as elders Through a lack of teaching. Maybe there's a lack of teaching on the respect for God and for His Word. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 2. This ought to be familiar because we were just studying this last week in our Bible class. Paul said, this is how the gospel was received when I came to Thessalonica. He said, you received it as the Word of God, as it is in truth the Word of God, and not as the Word of men. He said, you received it as the Word of God, but not as the Word of men. They respected it for what it was. And so, maybe because we're doing a lack of teaching at times on the respect for God and for His Word, then that's encouraging moral decline. Children are being raised in our society and even sometimes among the people of God where they have very little respect for God and for His Word. The fact the Bible says it doesn't mean anything, the Bible doesn't carry any authority in their life. It's just a good book, good suggestions. But maybe it doesn't have any real moral authority in their life. Or maybe because of a lack of teaching on worldliness. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2, 15. John said, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, are not of the Father, but of the world. I want us to get down to verse verse, uh, 17. The world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now let's go back to verse 15 in contrast. If you do the will of the Lord, you abide forever life. Go back to verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is in, not in him. In other words, you can't love the world involved in worldliness and at the same time love God and expect to go to heaven in the after while. Go to Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 20. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. And then there's a number of things that we would call worldliness. Let's see what they are. Well, among that list, he says in Galatians chapter 5, there's fornication, um, there is adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness. There's the overt act of, of adultery, fornication, homosexuality. But then there's, there's the, the lust, for example, the, the licentiousness. There's idolatry, there's sorcery. There's attitudes like hatred and contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath. There's envy. So here are things that are worldly in their nature. Look at verse 21 with me, if you will. Look at verse 21 that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Here's here's the point we're driving at. Maybe because we do a lack of teaching on worldliness, that encourages moral decline. Maybe because we don't do any teaching on on, uh, stealing, for example. I think everybody knows. We may become guilty of stealing. You do a lack of teaching on dancing, and people are going to be encouraged to dance because they haven't been taught. A lack of teaching on modesty, then they're going to be encouraged to dress immodestly. modestly. A lack of teaching on, on gambling, they might be encouraged to gamble. Not because we're telling them to do it, it's because we're not teaching on that. We have enough problem with every one of those sins when we are teaching on it. How much more problem do we have when we restrain the teaching on that? So we might be encouraging moral decline in our homes and in our families because we're not teaching on those things. We may be encouraging it in the congregation when we're not teaching on those things. Here's another way. Maybe it's not that we're not teaching, but because we have a lack of teeth in what is taught. What do we mean a lack of teeth? Well, it may be that we don't make application to the actions that are contrary to the will of God. Let's go to Galatians chapter 2. Here were some men who were involved in teaching the truth. They knew the truth it wasn't a matter of instructing them, this is what's right, this is the revelation of God. It was a matter of Paul pointing out to Peter that you already know what's right, you're just not doing what you know to be right. It's a case where Peter acted as a hypocrite and wouldn't associate with the Gentiles. Let's look at verse 14. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, what did he say? That if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as the Jews? In other words, he rebuked him because you're not making application of the principle that you know to be true. You already know this, Peter. You know what's right. You know Gentiles. You've even proven this and preached on it. But you're just not making application in your life. What he's doing, what Paul is doing is putting some teeth in what has been taught. This fits you, Peter. This is what fits you. You are living in violation of that principle. So when we have a lack of teeth in application of the principle, that encourages moral decline. Or maybe like a lack of discipline. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You remember the church at Corinth had a fornicator in their midst, and Paul rebuked the church because his focal point is not at the beginning of this chapter, while he is condemning the fornicator, he's not directing the fornicator, he's directing his thoughts to the church, at what they had not done about that fornicator. And he says that you are puffed up and if not rather more, You should have been upset about this sin in your midst. That he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And then notice he said at verse 6, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That lack of discipline on your part is encouraging moral decline in this brother and everyone else in the church as well. Here's the third way in which we might be encouraging moral decline and that is having a tolerant spirit. What do we mean by tolerant spirit? It's where we're tolerant of something we may not even approve of. We may even say it's wrong. We may even put our pronouncement of sin upon it. It's something sinful and wrong and I don't have anything to do with it, but we tolerate it. Let's look, notice a case or two in point. Why? Are you at 1 Corinthians 5, before you leave there, let's just start there and then we'll go to Revelation. Here at the church at Corinth, there is no evidence that the brethren at Corinth was approving of a man having his father's wife. There is no indication anyone was saying, I defend him. He has a right to have his father's wife. He can commit that sin of fornication. If he wants to do that, he can. They didn't approve of it, but they were tolerant of it. They were not even mourning. They were not even upset that the sin was going on in their midst. Now let's go over to Revelation chapter 2. Go to Revelation chapter 2 and in verse 20. Revelation 2 and in verse 20. 20. Here's the church at Thyatira. And this was a very tolerant church. There were some good things about the church and there were some bad things about the church. They are commended for their works and love and service and their faith and patience. They were very, very faithful in a lot of areas. But look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Well, what is that? Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants and to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. See, the problem at Thyatira was not what so much they were saying was right or wrong, but what they were tolerating that they would agree that's wrong. They were a tolerant church. Maybe that tolerant spirit spills over into our families. We may not approve of the sin, but we don't hate it either. We won't read every one of these passages, but let's just look at Proverbs 8 and verse 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. In other words, I don't need to be tolerant of it. I need to be hateful of that sin. I may not approve it. I may even call it sin, but I I may not hate it either. That makes me tolerant. So I may not approve of drinking, but I may be tolerant of drinking. I may not approve of lying, but I'm being tolerant of it. I may not approve of immodesty, but I'm tolerant of it. Or I may not approve of the dance, but I'm tolerant of it. Go to Romans chapter 12. We should abhor that which is evil, Paul said. And cling to that which is good. If it's evil and it's sinful, we ought to abhor it. We ought to hate it. Here's our fourth and final way. In which we might be guilty of encouraging moral decline. And that's when parents loosen the restraints. The parents loosen the... The restraints. Maybe we're not careful about what the children watch. Now remember we talked about loosening the restraints like the hair all bound up and then you you take the, the garment loose or the ribbon loose or whatever you bound it with and you let it loose. The restraint is gone. Same word. Same word used in Numbers 5 is used right here in 2 Chronicles. So when we loosen the restraints on the children, we're not careful about what they watch on television. We're not careful about the movies they continue to watch. We have no clue what they're seeing. We might be encouraging moral decline. When we pay no attention to what the children are taught, maybe it's in Bible class. Maybe it's what they're being taught in public school. Maybe it's what their professor has been telling them. Maybe it's the the, the places where we let them go to services and they, they listen To someone who claims to be a gospel preacher, but he may be teaching some things contrary to the will of God. And we're not careful about what they're taught. We may be loosening the restraints. We might be encouraging moral decline. When we allow them free reign with their friends, they can choose whatever friends they want. We're not concerned about that. I don't know who their friends are. I don't know who they run with. When we allow them free reign with where they go and what they wear, we might be encouraging moral decline. When we protect our loved ones from those who want to encourage them or correct them. That's happened time and again. When maybe someone just wants to encourage this person to obey the gospel, the the parents maybe usher them away and and protect them. I don't want anybody encouraging my child to do that. You may may offend them. Or the child is in sin and we maybe want to talk to them about seeing if we can do anything to encourage them to do what's right. Maybe the parents or the family protects them. I don't want want them to be talked to by the elders or a preacher or any Christian around. I don't want them talked to So when we start protecting our loved ones from those that seek to encourage them, we might be loosening the restraints. We might be encouraging moral decline. When we start making excuses for our family that's not living right. We know they're not living right. We don't approve of that, but we make excuses for them not living as they should. We might be encouraging moral decline. How could we be guilty? We might be guilty by a lack of teaching. Sometimes by lack of putting the teeth into the teaching. Sometimes by just having this tolerant spirit. Or maybe... Loosening the restraint as parents, maybe loosening the restraint as elders, as preachers of the gospel, teachers in Bible class. And a week ago, we might be encouraging moral decline. Ahaz was a wicked man. The text says he encouraged moral decline. He made Israel naked, made Judah naked, the text says. We've looked at the phrase, what it means, the context, what he did and the meaning it has to us. What does it mean? The warning it gives to us. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come? While together we stand and while we sing.